Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Grey Malkin Lane, the podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. Now, in X-Men number 37 through 39, our team averted World War III, apparently, and defeated the kind of underwhelming threat of Factor Three, which ended a year-long storyline in the X-Men that was kind of nonsense <laughs> by the time we finished. Uh, at the end of the issue, Jean Grey revealed that she had sewed new costumes for the whole team. So that's kind of the big surprise as we get to start this issue with new looks for everybody for the first time. Uh, today we're going to be reviewing X-Men number 40 from January 1968. It's called The Mark of the Monster. Uh, this issue is by Roy Thomas with art by Don Heck and George Tuska and letters by Artie Simon. Uh, I am so incredibly honored to have uh, Patrick and Rowan back with us. Hi guys. Hey, how's it going? Good, good. How's it going? So good. And uh, we are uh, joined by the esteemed writer, uh, Rihanna Pratchett. Rihanna, hi, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me on. I'm so happy you're here. Thank you for spending your Wednesday morning for me, afternoon for you <laughs> yeah. with us. Uh, so as you each introduce yourselves, let's go in the order of Rihanna, Rowan, Patrick. Uh, let us know your name, your gender pronouns, where people might know you from. And then just an intro question for today. If you think back to childhood, what monster movie or story scared you the most? Uh, Rihanna, will you go first? Yeah, I'm, I'm Rihanna Pratchett. Um, I'm a writer. I'm probably best known for my work in video games. So I've, I've worked on things like Heavenly Sword, Mirror's Edge, the Overlord games. But I'm probably best known for working on the reboot of Tomb Raider and its sequel, Rise of the Tomb Raider. Um, I've also done quite a lot of stuff in comics as well. Um, I've worked for uh, DC, Dark Horse, and most recently Marvel. So I've, I've got the big three down, which is good. Um, and... What else have I done? I've written a fighting fantasy book. I've written a tabletop RPG. I've written like nonfiction stuff. Probably I've, I've done pretty much everything except a full-blown novel, radio and stage plays, but I've got everything else covered. Um, and yeah, monsters. I, I was thinking back, like there was a lot of things that scared me that weren't necessarily monsters. There was like a terrifying, and you know, I'm in the UK, so we had some different things going on, I imagine. Uh, in, in my childhood, there was this character called Nosy Bonk, um, and it, it, it was <clears throat> it was a man in a suit with a large pink head, and he had a really really long nose, and it had I for some reason I remember it having scary music, and I really really disliked Nosy Bonk. He wasn't supposed to be a monster. I just found him scary, which um, I find I find a lot of my childhood is a bit like that, but. I was quite scared of wolves um, as a kid because I, I think my father had told me that they still existed in the valley. So I was always a bit worried about that. Um, and yeah, I grew up on the edge of a, a, a little um, valley in the, the countryside with chickens and ducks in the back garden and, and goats in the front garden. So it was all very idyllic and magical. So it seemed like a place that wolves could exist. Um, but the the beast with five fingers, if you if you know the uh, the the short horror story I think that scared me a lot because my mum used to listen to um something called fear on four on the radio which was a a, a a um a gentleman that used to go by the name of the man in black who would introduce uh the these horror stories and they were things like the monkey's paw uh the beast with five fingers quite classical stuff uh, and she always used to have it on when I was eating dinner and I'd have to be forced to listen to it, me trying to eat dinner whilst covering my ears at the same time. But yeah, the, the Beast with Five Fingers, the, the sort of disembodied hand, I found very scary. 
uh, and also the monkey's paw as well. Not not like traditional monsters. Um, yeah, clearly I was just uh, disturbed by by um, unusual body parts, like <laughs> hands, paws, noses. Um, yeah, that's kind of what scared me. Yeah, things things are miss with um, you know hum, human protuberances. I guess would have been uh, was was that. Um, I watched a lot of alien movies. Like my my um, my parents were very liberal with what they let me watch. So I watched Aliens before I watched Alien. But I think I kind of didn't find the Alien Queen that scary because I remember I used to have like a six foot Alien Queen poster on the back of my door. So I obviously didn't find her that scary. But yeah, disembodied hands, disembodied monkey paws and and you know men in suits with very long noses was, yeah, that was my, that's my scariness as a kid. I'll say this just once so we can get it out of the way, but oh my God, your accent is wonderful. And I... <laughs> I know, I know Americans say that to British people all the time, and I've never once heard a British person say that to an American. <laughs> but I, I, I find your voice so, so soothing. American accents, maybe, because we hear it so much in TV. It's oh, probably sure. a little bit more unusual. Um, what, when, for me, when, I don't know, it's for other bits, when you hear a lot of American accents around you, it always feels like you're on a TV show, which is quite a nice feeling. <laughs> I, uh, I told you just before we started, I've been listening to a lot of your uh, your public speeches. And so like just hearing you talk now, I'm like, oh, like I love it so much. <laughs> uh, Rowan, do you want to go next? Uh, so I'm uh, Rowan Frazier. I go by he and him. Uh, I'm from the It Slays podcast. Uh, we're a podcast that every episode we review horror movies. We each member of it kind of picks one and then we review it uh usually drinks are involved and, and you know we just get silly with it uh and yeah that's really all i'm about uh and what scared you as a kid uh, oh geez this is a tough one so probably the scariest thing to me as a kid was uh tim curry's pennywise was the first thing that really scared me and still kind of scares me today uh i yeah i saw that movie when i was i don't know like four or five and i just always it always creeped me out anytime i'd watch it even as like a grown man now uh like i'll be like laying in bed and i'm just envisioning him like popping out <laughs> somewhere telling me a terrible joke or something <laughs> Uh, and Rowan is in Nova Scotia, right? So this is like yes. international recording today. I love it. Uh, Patrick, how about you? Uh, hey, I'm Patrick. I am uh, the proprietor of the Never Ending X-Men Instagram account, where I am documenting my journey through reading every X-Men comic ever. Um, I've slowed down a little bit on that recently, but it's still happening, still doing it. <laughs> Um, I also am a co-host of a podcast called Every Horror Movie on Netflix, where we are reviewing every horror movie on Netflix. So you may notice I have a little bit of a uh, predilection for completism when it comes to uh, <laughs> media consumption. Um, also a big fan of the It Slays podcast. We recently did a fun little crossover event with them. So uh, if you like horror movies, go check that out. We both reviewed Hush and swapped members, swapped hosts of our podcasts. Um, and I also want to say, Rihanna, I looked up Nosy Bonk, and you were not kidding. That thing is freaky as shit. Yeah. <laughs> I'm scared of it, and I'm 33 years old. Wow. Um, 
I think the the monster that scared me most as a kid, I think I, I feel like I talked about this maybe on a previous Grey Malkin episode, but I think the one that really got me the most was uh, the crocodile from uh, Peter Pan, from the Disney Peter Pan. Just something about that ticking clock just deeply unnerved me. Um, and I, I saw that once as a child and never again. I, I feel like I should revisit it as an adult and see how it sits with me now but you know i got too many x-men comics to read and too many netflix horror movies to watch upon rewatching, you will probably discover the crocodile is fine but the racism is not <laughs> <laughs> yeah i believe that uh you uh ehmon your podcast recently had a pretty decent uh uh write-up uh didn't it like you got you guys got some notice yeah yeah, we um, were very fortunate and very surprised to uh, be featured in a variety article about, I think it was 10 horror podcasts to listen to right now, and every horror movie on Netflix was among them. So we were a little gobsmacked to be in some pretty esteemed company with some outstanding uh, horror podcasts that have a lot more experience and a lot more audience than we do. But uh yeah, that was a nice surprise. You guys are both a lot of fun. Patrick, you were one of my earliest guests on the show. It's nice to have you back. Yeah. It's been a long time. Yeah, it's great to be here. Uh, my name is Chad. I use he, him pronouns. I'm sitting here in Salt Lake City. Uh, my, uh, I have a big family. I'm the sixth of seven kids. And when I was maybe four, my sister, my oldest sister, who is, I think, 13 years older than me, had several friends over. And I walked in the room and kind of just hovered in the back because I was trying to see what they were watching. And they were watching Poltergeist. And this is back in like 1991. And there was that image of the girl getting stuck in the television behind the static, which as an adult isn't scary, but as a kid, holy shit, I was so frightened. And then for, I think, probably six years, I felt like the ghosts from that movie moved into my mother's closet and I wouldn't go in her oh, closet no. for it. She had a big walk-in closet and I wouldn't go in it for any reason. I like the <laughs> poltergeist were in there until I was 10. I don't know what happened <laughs> in my brain, but I was really scared. Uh, there was also an episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark on Nickelodeon where some kids got stuck in a mirror. And there was a good period of time where I couldn't look in mirrors. Um, uh, and then episode. Do, do you remember that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then the the opening soundtrack to uh, to Unsolved Mysteries. Dun, 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 dun. I, I, that would play. <laughs> or the windows locked or the doors locked. Uh, so um, a few months ago, I was reading the Marvel solicits for upcoming books, and they announced the new Women of Marvel special. And I saw the name Rihanna Pratchett in there. And I was like, oh, my God, like, because I knew your name from Tomb Raider. Uh, and frankly, uh, from uh, your connection to your father, Terry Pratchett, who wrote the Discworld series, which I loved as a kid. Uh, let's let's just get that question out of the way. I uh, I know you uh, I know you probably answer questions about this all the time, but what's it like being Terry Pratchett's daughter? <laughs> Well, I've never not been Terry Pratchett's daughter, so it's, <laughs> I, I, I have no frame of reference, really. Um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 been a interesting challenge over the years. Um, you know, I for for a long time didn't really take much notice of what he was doing because it's like that's what you know that's your dad's job, and so you don't really think about it that much. So I didn't actually start reading his stuff or paying attention to what he was doing until Equal Rights came on Women's Hour on Radio Four, like. Um, Radio 4 clearly, you know, characterised some aspects of my childhood because that's where Fear on 4 was as well. But my mum used to listen to Women's Hour and so that I thought it was some, like, sacred, holy thing in the house. And equal rights were serialised on Women's Hour and I thought, oh, my God, he's serialised on Women's Hour, on Women's Hour. Like, that's, that's, that's you know, that's a, a, a big thing. So I carefully, like, 
taped it off the radio and, li- and you know listened to it over and over again and that's how I got into it so I, I sort of missed out on reading things like Color of Magic and like Fantastic and Strata and the Carpet People so I started on Equal Rights and sort of worked my way through that and I, I've read most of them not all of them but like hey he never played any of my games so uh, <laughs> um and uh yeah so I, I spent a lot of time going to um sf and fantasy conventions and i think in in particular i, I sort of was musing on this for for um a, a little segment i did on a video that will be, be coming out soon um, I think the SF and fantasy scene was very welcoming to to um, queer folks of all, all persuasions, and so I, I met a lot of you know trans people in particular. Um, even before I kind of knew what what you know trans uh, transgender person um, w- was about, really, and it was real really good ally training wheels, I think, for me. And um, my dad, because of some of the um, characters and themes in his book particularly with Cherry Littlebottom um, and in Monstrous Regiment he had a, a lot of trans fans and was very supportive of the trans community um, and yeah I always felt that SF and fantasy was very welcoming to to, to kind of people that are a little bit different um, and I, I still feel that that's the case but it was um it was really great grounding it was very uh, eye-opening um, I think but you know, it's in the years because he's, he's he uh, passed away just over seven years ago now, and yeah, it's definitely been a challenge since then because you're basically trying to do, you know, build your own legacy whilst also simultaneously supporting someone else, uh, you know, trying to hold up someone else's legacy and kind of do right there. So it gets a uh, there's a lot going on and there's a lot to to weigh up uh really and sort of deciding what i'm going to work on and when and who's going to work on this and yeah so the, there's a lot of things to balance and um you know anyone i think who has had a a parent or a, a sibling pass away in the glare of the public eye <clears throat> knows it's all very very surreal um and weird and uh yeah there's just no there's just no way of sort of expressing how how strange it was like on on the day he died and and my mother and I were with him and and when he passed away which was which was great because it was half past three in the morning but you know it it all um yeah we we happened to I I just kind of woken up and gone to sit with him and she was just about to go to bed and we it it sort of worked out um and so like there was this sort of family family thing we were there and there was cat on the bed um and uh you know he he passed away as as was kind of expected at at, at the time and I think I got a few hours sleep and every time I sort of vaguely woke up my my brain would be screaming your dad is dead your dad is dead like a foghorn and then there was sort of there was a bit of peace in the morning when no one else knew apart from the the immediate family and then the press release went out and then it was you know, my my dad is still dead in the next room, and there he's on the TV walking around, and it was very very surreal. And um, yeah, I, I, ever since then, my life has got a whole lot more complicated. Uh, so yeah, it's it's twisted and roundabout. Sorry, I just went into great depth and detail there, but yeah, it's, it it's, it there was a lot of very cool things, but also a lot of like challenging things as well. So that probably would have been the short answer. No, no. Are you the manager of his estate? Yeah, I mean, I'm the, the code. Well, yes. So I'm the uh, director of 
um, Narrativia, or co-director of Narrativia with Rob Wilkins, his, his sort of right-hand man. Um, and uh, we have a, a several other members of staff with us, and we, we are responsible for the multimedia rights to, to, to uh, dance books. Sure. And I'm also sort of um, uh, part owner of Dumb Manifest, in, uh, which is the deals with the sort of publishing side. So, you know, special editions or, you know, anything that's published to do with those short stories, that kind of thing. Um, but Rob does a lot of the, the day to day running of things uh, along with uh, uh, Susie, Alex, uh, Yaz and Gabby, um, who will work for us. Um, but I, I have more to do with narrative, yeah, so I have projects with, um, uh, you know, motive, motive pictures, um, who we announced that we were doing a, uh, a partnership with a few years back, so we have projects developing with them, so I am on the kind of, you know, developing side of things, and Rob tends to, to do a lot of the, the kind of day-to-day -day, day business of it, um, but I'm also kind of out there, like, representing my, my dad, um, and you know, you know, talking about Pratchett related stuff or, or supporting issues that I think he would have supported, particularly trans rights, um, which the gender criticals dragged me into a while back. Um, and so, you know, it, I, I know he would have been supportive, uh, very supportive of trans rights and was very supportive of trans rights. So I kind of wanted to keep that up. Um, and yeah, so there's, there's lots of bits and pieces to it. I'm probably more involved now than I ever have been um, because there was certainly a period where I, you know, I wasn't, you know, I, I, I liked his books, but I kept Discworld at a distance because I wanted to establish my own career and in games and things like that. My, Despite the fact that my dad had a couple of Discworld guys, he wasn't really involved in the industry. So it felt like I could, it was an industry that I really loved that I could, you know, build my own career in without sort of dad looming quite so large. Sure. And and what an incredible career you've built. I mean, my word, you are you are so storied and incredible. You've got quite the resume, uh, uh, and have become a a, a force uh, of, of your own. He has had such a powerful impact on fantasy novels and on inclusion in that space. And you have had that in video games, uh, telling these incredible stories. Uh, commenting on what you were just saying about trans rights, I think we're living in a time in many countries where I would you know I was raised in a world where we didn't talk about gay or trans people. And I was a gay kid with a gay sister in a household where it just wasn't a topic of conversation. It wasn't something that was even allowed. And when you hear these stories about well, you're just raised to believe that it's normal. I have two sons that are 13 and 10. When my 10 year old was five, so five years ago, he put together a little book where he wanted to design superheroes. And he's, he like brought it in and he's like, check a box and I'll design a hero for you. And on page one, he's, <laughs> he's like, what kind of powers do you want them to have? And there was like eight options. He flipped the page, like, what race do you want them to be? And there was like six options. And then on the next page, he's like, choose a gender. And it was male, female, non-binary or trans. And like, he just, he had that written out in his little yeah. crayon handwriting. Oh. It was just a box you could check. It, it, it wasn't an agenda. It's just something that he's yeah. always been raised to think is completely yeah. normal. Uh, and that's, there's such a difference as we're seeing that kind of stamped out now. Um, shifting the conversation a little, you recently wrote a, a short story in the Women of Marvel special uh, about Shanna the She-Devil and Silver Sable that captured some really gorgeous uh, uh, political complexity, for, <laughs> for lack of better phrasing. Uh, tell us how you how you got this gig with Marvel, uh, how you chose those characters, and a little about the story you told. It's 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 really well done. Thank you. Um... I had been uh, talking to Sarah Brunstad for a little bit on and off about uh, Shana in particular, 
um, about sort of whether I wanted to to do something with her. And I, I think she's um, she's a difficult character because she's quite she's quite retro, and both her and Kaza are, are quite retro style characters. They're, they're pretty much a sort of a Tarzan and Jane, but in a kind of more slightly more pre you know prehistoric setting. Um, and so I mean, she's she's a she would be a challenging one to um, do a whole series about, I think. And and in the end, I think she got rolled into the, uh, the Khazar Lord of the Jungle, which I think has recently recently come out. Um, that series where it's um, her and and Khazar and and Matthew, their son, in, in the Savage Land. Um, but they, this uh, and Sarah got back to me and and said that there's this opportunity to do. Um, uh, a, a little story for women of Marvel and, and could I come up with anything and she said it might be nice to do something with Shana here and yeah I wasn't beholden to her but I thought oh yes let's see what I could we can do and I'd sort of been researching her um and her uh you know her dislike of guns um and I also wanted to do a little and I, you know I, I did wonder I wanted to take the kind of slight eco-warrior vibe that she had or it felt like that's where she would be kind of going towards if she, she weren't sort of modernized um and I I did a little homage to my dad actually so many 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 years ago gosh it must be over 20 now he did Terry Pratchett's Jungle Quest where he went to Borneo to visit the orangutans um and uh, he then then went back, I think, 15 years later with Alzheimer's to, to try and track down one of the orangutans uh, that he he had met when he was over there called Kasasi. Um, and I, I kind of thought that would be that would be a nice, uh, nice thing to do. And I, I also wanted to sort of draw a bit of attention to, you know, the destruction of the rainforest and, and the the the. the pervasiveness of the, of the palm oil plantations and and you know the the fact that orangutans are, are um dwindling and so I sort of thought I'd, I'd put Shana in that situation and I wanted to get a little conflict with a character that was very pro-guns um, so I brought in in silver uh for that and, and I sort of put them on a a journey through the rainforest together to um to intercept some uh animal traffickers who are taking maybe uh orangutans to to be to be sold which does which does happen um and yeah it was a little so it was done as a little homage to my dad my dad when he went to actually most times he was in Borneo he, he rode on the Kalutuk which is that little boat that used to be going down on the river and there is a he described baby orangutans as looking like a surprised coconut so I I rolled that into one of Silver's lines so yeah it was it was a nice way of doing a little bit of um political ecological commentary with some some kind of characters that had some like you know opposing views about um you know how they conducted themselves in the world and also I thought that was kind of a nice little meaty Mitty thing to do so uh, yeah that's a lot that's very long sorry i'm not oh no anymore <laughs> the uh the art by I, I hope i'm saying this right alina arafiva uh yeah i think that's right yeah gorgeous and she's based in ukraine correct mm. she is yeah i i you know i was i was very worried about her and I, I sort of sent a message early on and she was still over there and i think that that she has she's gone to poland now thankfully right. but she was um, there for 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 
quite well but her art was fantastic she, like yeah. she, she absolutely knocked it out of the park and then she was she was a real find and I hope that the Marvel will go on to use her more elsewhere because she, she really did great work and and um uh the the colorist as well the the uh, you, you may have the colorist name to hand there I, I haven't been able to pick up that issue yet because I went to Forbidden Planet and they'd sold th- 29 of 30 copies and I didn't want to like take the last one I wanted to leave it on the shelf so I haven't actually got a copy of my own uh, but then you know the colors were wonderful as well the sort of lush jungle colors so I, yeah I was really pleased with it and I never worked for Marvel before and so I kind of wanted uh, like to get the big three, the Dark Horse, uh, you know, Dark Horse DC and Marvel, because I did Mirror's Edge comics with DC Wildstorm. That was my first foray into comics. And then I did quite a bit with Dark Horse, with the Tomb Raider, with a prequel story to the first game and with a little bit of Thief comics. Um, and, you know, aside from that, I've, did, I've done a, uh, I did a, an origin story for Red Sonia's Chainmail Bikini, uh, in a dynamite comic of, of like a, a, another another sort of small story comic um, in a red uh, red Sonia anthology, um, and I did a um, uh, for Kadanshan Comics. Um, why is the name just gone out of my head? Uh, Attack on Titan. I did an Attack on Titan story uh, <clears throat> about um, uh, two creative teachers uh, building a flying machine underneath their school. Uh, the color uh, you were talking about is uh, Ruth Redmond, uh, yeah, and then your letterer was yeah. uh, your letterer was Ariana Mayer, who we had on the podcast a few weeks ah, ago. It's just an absolute gem. We we adore her. Yeah, um, I mean, that, lettering is such a skill, and I think you can like going through this Marvel uh, comic, you can see how much you know lettering and spacing is such such a skill. And I, I just one of the things I was amazed about looking through um, issue forty is how much how many words they stick on like i just like oh they've got all the words all there's so place. many words yeah the uh, art, yeah the art of like placement and stuff is is sort of phenomenal so yeah when, i was very very pleased with the team that we when we had ariana on i i'd heard good things about her and i expected to enjoy myself but it was like a whole damn education i felt like i'd audited this incredible college course uh rowan and patrick what questions do you have for rihanna you go ahead patrick uh, yeah, I was just curious, um, you know, given that you have worked in, worked in so many uh, different mediums, um, I'm very familiar with kind of the process of making comics and what that looks like. I'm very unfamiliar with the process of writing video games. And I'm just curious, uh, you know, what how, the, how those two experiences differ for you and what are sort of the unique, uh, you know, upsides and unique challenges or frustrations to working in each of those mediums for you? Um, a lot, a lot of it depends on a number of factors when it comes to games. Um, the genre of game that you're working on has has a big impact on uh, the narrative component. So if you're working on, you know, an RTS game, it's probably going to have you know less dialogue and, and narrative requirements than say an action adventure game. If you're working on a a, fir- a first person shooter or a third person shooter you're going to have to, um, you know, a lot of time will be given over to to kind of gameplay and very action orientated gameplay. And you're looking about how you can, you know, roll that action into who the character is. And that's something that's, you know, it's one of the biggest challenges because, you know, when you write for 
particularly for, for film and TV, they talk about action equals character. And of course, so all it just means is, is what a, a character does, says as much, if not more about them than, than you know, words alone. Um, but in games, action is done by a completely different department who, who may not care that much about narrative and who ha- aren't that bothered about how much it relates to character and are bothered about how much of a funny experience it is for the players. Mm. Um, and so that is this kind of the, one of the big challenges. And so that was one of the big challenges that we had with Tomb Raider was, um, and I've, I've talked about this this a, f- a few times in your chat, you may have um, heard me talk about it, which was the first kill in Tomb Raider, which um, was, was kind of an interesting example of where, you know, balancing um narrative and gameplay can can go astray and why and for like understandable reasons throughout um you know narrative wanted the first girl to kind of be impactful and and you know you know her reacting to it not just sort of you know going you know going around the corner and and shooting some more uh, some more dudes but um so we we kind of got the impact of it and uh, of the first kill but she'd been given a gun, and therefore the feedback that we that the the uh, we were getting from Platus was was okay. We have a gun now. We need things to shoot with a gun because that's <laughs> how you're conditioned as a gamer. Like you get a weapon around the corner, it will be you know something to hit with it, uh, and that's how what we used to. And that so that meant um, she did basically go around the corner and shoot after being very very <laughs> upset. Um, and originally, when I wrote the script from her first kill to the point where she actually articulates um, uh, what it felt like to another character and, and she talks to, to Roth, her mentor, and, and she hears him sort of, um, you know, I think it's maybe, if not the first, it's certainly and the second time she, she's heard him and she's kind of relieved he's still alive. And, and she she has she sort of confesses to him that I had to kill some people and, and he's like that that kind of been easy and she's like scary how easy it was and and she sort of realizes that something has broken in her slightly and 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 she's sort of seeing a level of herself that she didn't think she was capable of um and you know I, I'd written it as a, a visual scene and she sort of found the radio and she's sort of getting more and more in a fetal position around the radio so you can see her body language as well as you know, of what she's saying and so in between first kill and reflecting on first girls so there were supposed to be no deaths then there was like 42 deaths uh, <laughs> the gameplay put in in between those two moments and we were like that's ridiculous like you just you, you know because they were making a big deal of you know this this impactful first kill moment um and you're she's just it's as if it didn't happen. And they, they think I reduced it to 16, but it's it still meant that when she was talking to Ross, she had to say, I killed some people. Um, and they changed it from a, a a cinematic into she's climbing up a ladder in game in in while you're playing the game saying this to him. So it kind of I you know, I understand why you know level design wanted this and, and gameplay wanted that, and narrative wanted that, but at the, at the end of the day, absolutely mugged where we wanted to go with the character because like it was like, you know, this is very upset, click, it's as if it didn't happen. And it would that's that's one of the things you have to deal with because you're thinking about, okay, what does this type of gameplay mean for this type of character? And yeah, and that's often where I I start and I, I get in, inspiration from. So something like Mirror's Edge, 
okay, the car, the character ru- runs a lot. Like she's running. Okay, okay. So, you know, uh, you know, metaphorically, what she's really running from? Like, what, what, what's scaring her? What caused her to run in the first place? What's going to make her stop, turn around, and face what she's really running away from? Um, and so that kind of action, and, and given the fact it wasn't hugely uh, violent either, and the character actually says she doesn't doesn't like guns very much. Um, so that certainly helped. Um, and yeah, Mirror's Edge was was quite a challenge in itself because a lot of the game had been designed with no narrative in mind. Um, and that's again one of the big challenges in the games. They're not, they don't have a history of involving writers in the process um, that well. Like when I started out as a game journalist um, many years ago in about 98. I, you know, I never met another uh, a writer in games. No one ever sat me down and said, "Hey, I'll speak to our writer." Like writing was happening, but it was usually done by whoever had the time and inclination to do it. Um, it was the only area of games that wasn't done by by a professional in that field. So when I went into it, there were very few people doing it, and you know, almost none that were just coming from a game background and specialising in games. So I just m- kind of made it up as I went along and I talked to some people that you know whose games I liked and I built up a few credits and things like that um but you know I was often working in teams where I was the only person that cared about narrative um you know I was the only writer uh and you may find like a, a designer that was sympathetic towards narrative but it was it was rough it was like kind of and then over the the next decade and you know next couple of decades it was like um you know the, the industrialization of the wild west like you'd, you'd see you'd remembered it when it was all like a few cowboys on their horses riding around and now the railroads are coming in and towns are getting built and things like that and we've seen you know narrative rise in importance with with publishers with developers with players uh, and there's much more focus on on narrative than you know there are writers rooms and things like that so oh i'm sorry please no no no, no. sorry i probably answered loads of questions in one so that yeah there are a lot of challenges um that come from the fact that writers they're they're relatively new in the development process compared to other roles the narrative literacy of the games industry is quite low compared to others because it's never had to be that high so you know when i work in film and tv everyone is quite experienced at story and when you work in games, you're dealing with a lot of people that aren't, but do have a lot of opinions. Uh, and so you're always having to kind of balance that out. Um, and yeah, you're always trying to to balance gameplay and, and narrative. So you can be saying something with the action as well as saying something with the character. And hopefully what you're saying with the character, what you're saying with the action m- meshes together well. Um, so that's that's kind of the, one of the main things and you know the fact that the player is so central in the action you know in in more passive in more you know mediums like tv or, or or film you're passively absorbing the story i think it's a little different when you're a reader when you're reading comics and and or or novels i think there is a little something something that goes on between reader and author but in games you are the story you're you're you need you need to be appear to be driving it your your actions um are all kind of what pushes the the story and the momentum forward. So you're also you know you're creating everything to sort of, sort of support this player's journey. Um, sorry, that was a very long answer. I guess. 
It's Agreed. the pandemic. I used to be really good at brevity because I worked at games and I, like, I, there was a pandemic and I didn't talk to many people and now I can't stop talking. I think it's fantastic. And super. I think when we're consuming media, we don't often take the time to think about what goes on behind it. Comics take months. Video games take years. There was a conversation. We had four friends over. We were sitting in the hot tub. <laughs> we were having a conversation about the appropriate amount of story content in porn. And one person is like, I need, I need a really good story with good actors. And other people are like, I just skip the story and get right to it. And then it turned into a conversation about story in video games. Some people really enjoy a lot of story and narrative, and others are like, I just skip right through it. And so as you're was that because of a John Car a John Carmack quote that, that you know that story like you need story in video games like you need story in porn. I don't think Wait, so. It just was the natural okay. course of the conversation. I don't know that. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering like what was the what was the segue there, Chad? <laughs> I think I think it was just a it was just a conversation about story in places where you don't necessarily need it, but some people prefer it. <laughs> it just kind of yeah. turned that direction. Yeah, I mean, I that that used to be the like the fight. You know, I don't know when he said it. Probably it was maybe a decade, a couple of decades ago. Um, and I think it's, it shows a, both a limited understanding of both porn and video games. But like that sounds like a great. That sounds like the right topic to have in a hot tub. <laughs> that's one of the difference. That, that's one of the differences when uh, in the US and, and the UK is like there are very few conversations that happen in hot tubs. Um, six six gay men with glad you know plastic cups of red wine in the hot tub <laughs> talking about story content and porn. Uh, so with that, let's actually jump into our uh, our issue review for today. Uh, and this was kind of fun happenstance. We assigned this issue randomly just based on the date, but it looks like uh, Rihanna. We'll hear from you, but there's some some <laughs> connections between you and this issue that I didn't expect uh, based on our email exchange. Uh, so this is X Men number forty. Uh, now I want to keep it. Uh, I want to just announce in advance. This is the time when the Comics Code Authority, which you see stamped on the front of every cover, was very controlling about what could be put in issues. Uh, they were they were concerned about the use of monsters in comics. You couldn't use the word vampire or zombie. Monster could only be used in certain contexts. So I interviewed Roy Thomas recently, but I did not ask this question. But some of the narrative turns this issue takes, I can only imagine were influenced by the Comics Code Authority and the use of Frankenstein's monster in general. But when we look at the cover of this issue, we see a giant uh, image of Frankenstein kind of ripping metal off a wall uh, nervously as the X-Men kind of rush through a door toward him. Uh, the X-Men meet Frankenstein, Nuff said, uh, it says across the top. But what did you guys think of this cover? Was it effective? Did you like it? I loved Frankenstein just crumbling up metal like it's paper. Yeah. It was a nice, nice little touch. And I like it how you said it does nervous. communicate some anxiety. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's scared yeah, he, of the X-Men. He seems sympathetic, which I don't think he's made out to be through the rest of the issue, but no. he's, it seems like he's he's scared. And if super strength were his only power, I'd get it. But good Lord, this is a weird character. Yeah. <laughs> Rowan, what were you going to say? Uh, well, I was just going to say, you know, this is kind of a very memorable cover for me. Uh, but whenever I look at it, I always think about, uh, you know, I'm one of those, you know, people that have been accustomed to, you see this character and you're just like, oh yeah, that's Frankenstein. And it's always the contention between me and my wife of, she's like, you know, that's not Frankenstein, right? That's Frankenstein's monster. And then like, of course, you know, explaining the, the comics code authority to her and, uh, She's not as comic. Uh, she doesn't care about comics. Let's just be realistic <laughs> about that. Uh, but yeah, so I, 
it's one of those things that always gets me when I look at it, uh, which I think as we read through it, we'll see they just kind of willy nilly decide when it's Frankenstein or Frankenstein's monster. The uh, his clothing is so pristine, except his like boots are shredded at the top and his sleeves are shredded at the bottom. I, I don't want to know what happened because everything else looks like it's freshly pressed. <laughs> I feel like that's very inspired by the the Boris Karloff costume. I think he had at least the same sleeves. The sleeves seem familiar. I think they're they're cribbing from that pretty heavily. So we've divided this uh, up into five page sections. Uh, so we're each gonna do a presentation about five pages and then we'll spend some time talking about what has happened after each one. Uh, I left my my sticky note in the other room. Who has the first five pages? I think that's me. Okay, yeah, Patrick, will you tell us yeah. what happens at the beginning of the book, please? Yeah, so the book starts off with kind of your, just one of, one of the great kind of stock openings of 60s X-Men that's used over and over and over, which is the team messing around in the danger room. I, and it, it really strikes me, this is one of the shorter such sequences. It, to me, it always strikes me as kind of a time-killing device. Like the writer is like, all right, I got about 10 pages of story and I need 10 pages of filler. Let's just have them dodge random obstacles in the danger room. For, well, I also think, you know, I, I, think there's, pages. I think there's pressure to open each issue with action. Yes. And you can't start in the middle of the story. In, in future books, we'll often see them start in the middle of the action. And then on page two or three, we flash back to how it started and build up to the action. But yeah, in the 60s, it's like them in the training room over and over again to begin. Well, yeah, because it is, you know, if you are looking to start with action, it's such an easy, it's such a convenient device to use because they've got the danger room and you can come up with just gimmicks and gizmos for them to dodge. Did anybody have any thoughts on the, the danger room action in the first couple pages? I was curious about the the line about knock you clear into next year's dictionary, which I thought like I don't. Um, is this a is this a joke I'm not getting? Beast uh, Beast in the '60s is known for his unnecessarily large words. It's kind uh, of his character okay, trope. Okay, so I think right. they just are teasing him about his vast <laughs> vocabulary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I was gonna say I feel that Patrick kind of said it all. It's just like '60s X Men. Here we go. I know people that remember me from the last episode we were on, they're just groaning because Rowan always complains about 60s X-Men. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, you've got your you got your danger room sequence, you've got everybody behaving in their very fairly stereotypical uh, personalities, you know, Bobby clowning around, Beast overusing his vocabulary, uh, and then of course Cyclops uh, intervenes to get everybody back on task to go talk to the professor about uh, the challenge of the day, which is, of course, as we already know, Frankenstein's monster. Uh, so the we, we see Beast in his new uniform, kind of pole vaulting everywhere, Iceman playing pranks on him. This is my favorite part of 60s Bobby. He freezes freezes the beam under his feet and, uh, and tries to make things unnecessarily difficult. They almost break up a fight before Professor X is like all bossy all over again. <laughs> what do you guys think of their new costumes? Do you have any, uh, any thoughts? This is kind of their first First uh, foray out of the blue and yellow. You know, I know that people hate the green and yellow mini skirt Marvel Girl. I know people have been up in arms about that costume coming back in the Krakoa era, but I like it. I think it's stylish. I, I've always enjoyed this look. I like Cyclops' look at this time too. Everybody else, especially Angel, looks terrible though. Yeah, this is kind of a rip off Cyclops' classic costume. It's kind of a, it it's is, a yeah. change for him forevermore, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, uh, Rihanna, what are your thoughts on the, the Green Mini? Well, I'm, I'm not really that familiar with the X-Men. So this has been a kind of learning experience for me. I've seen, I, I haven't read any of the comics, um, but I have seen the movies or some of the movies. Um, so yeah, I didn't know what they looked looked like before. Um, it reminds me so much there, there is a video game um, done by Ken Levine and Irrational Games of the uh, of Bioshock fame called Freedom Force. Uh, which is all where you basically you know, control a it's it's a sort of turn-based strategy game, um, but uh, sort of isometric viewpoint for for the action, and they just made up superheroes for it, and they're really they're they're really um, well observed from kind of sixties seventies era um, superheroes with, without actually seeming too much like any, any anything else so it really reminded me of freedom force and the way they they kind of talk um and really articulate their you know what's going on in their heads whilst they're being struck by something that is you know you don't see that kind of thing anymore and you know it, it's sort of very it's kind of charming how they do it um yeah and gosh holy heck there is a lot of text yeah. so much text so much um, yeah that was that was the main thing that sort of struck me but yeah i mean <clears throat> with um uh jean's new costume i mean it's okay uh like she they do obviously have her doing very girly things and like the first i did notice that the first line about about her is uh you know a typical you know that's a typical woman line um and she's often saving people but i don't know if that's just how they used her back then this um, is frankly this is better than it was at the beginning uh for jane <laughs> yeah <laughs> they're pretty awful to her in the 60s but yeah they say uh weren't you and the professor working on a hush hush project she says the answer to that question is yes or no to which cyclops not beast beast is usually the sexist one cyclops says if that isn't a typical woman's answer i don't know what is just blah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh patrick guide us through if you would uh what professor x's uh mission for the x-men in this issue is yeah, so he tells them that Frankenstein's monster has in fact been found, and uh, Bobby, speaking for, I think, the entire audience at this point, says, uh, Frankenstein's monster, but he's just a myth, something you see on The Late Late Show, um, which actually, has Frankenstein ever been on The Late Late Show? I guess I'm not sure about that, but certainly his, his incredulity about Frankenstein being a real uh, creature, I think. Yeah, maybe like old 40s. Old 40s movies played late at night or something. Yeah, yeah, could be. I would like to see Frankenstein on a talk show, though, like Frankenstein on the actual Late Late <laughs> Show. That would be interesting. Um, but yeah, Professor X uh, corrects Bobby to say that he's not speaking of a movie monster, but actually the eight-foot humanoid creature from the novel by Mary Shelley. Um, and then we cut to the discovery of Frankenstein in a block of ice. Just very Captain America. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah, this uh, this all feels derivative of a few different things. Um, but the professor uh, <laughs> reveals, or wait, actually, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. No, this is on page four. The professor reveals that he suspects uh, Frankenstein is not in fact a monster, but an android, which is one of the first uh, big revelations and tweaks <laughs> to the Frankenstein mythology that this story introduces. <laughs> Yeah, Professor X, uh, we, apparently he's a huge Frankenstein's monster fan. He he says, I've, mm -hmm. always, I've always thought that Frankenstein's monster was an android and that his creator wasn't actually a mutant. 
just as I suspected. Now he's been found. My theories are founded. Now, uh, we're going to reveal this is spoilers for a couple issues. Hence, Professor X apparently dies in two issues, but it's not actually Professor X. It's the shapeshifter changeling who was just with oh, yes. the factor three. So this version of Professor X might actually be the changeling, which we don't have to spend a lot of time on because I don't know exactly when that swap took place, but that's their way to bring Professor X back in the future is they're like, oh, he didn't actually die. It was the shape changer. Uh, so this could be changeling here. <laughs> yeah, so maybe changeling could... is actually the fanboy. What was that, Rihanna? Oh yeah, I was gonna say, I didn't know he could double as a human projector as well. <laughs> like, there, there's some interesting- no, there are some interesting uh, kind of one-off powers that he displays in the 60s. Not quite one-off, but like astral proje projection is a thing that he does in a few early stories and then is kind of never really seen again, to my knowledge. And certainly projecting images on a wall is, I'm not sure he's ever done that again. Well, in a minute, we're going to see him reading the mind of a robot. So, you know, he can do all <laughs> kinds of things. <laughs> what, happens yeah. on a, what happens on pages four and five, Patrick? Um. Yes, so page... Four. Sorry, I'm confused because I'm on Marvel Unlimited. Page four is actually five. Um, yeah, so page four is, is where Professor X is projecting Frankenstein's image on the wall, uh, explaining his theory about uh, Frankenstein being an android uh, and about the creator being a mutant. So I think we pretty much just covered that one just now. So I guess I'll move on to page five, actually. We flash back to the scientists who've discovered Frankenstein still frozen in the ice. Mm -hmm. um, and they make the great mistake <laughs> of lowering the temperature of the ice that he's encased in, uh, assuming that the creature will not actually uh, come to life when they defrost him. But of course he does because we wouldn't have a story otherwise. And then, uh, and then the X-Men arrive at the museum where Frankenstein's monster is being kept and the guard's like, hey, Charles, it's my old friend. And then Gene just slams him against the wall and knocks him unconscious, which seems so <laughs> unnecessary. <laughs> just, uh, there's, a, there's a crash and a thwop and then, uh, and then on they go. Uh, Ro, do you want to guide us through the next, uh, next five pages? Tell us what happens. Yeah, so uh, then we kind of get the, the full body unthawed uh frankenstein's monster going on uh you know after we <laughs> get the reveal of uh I, the, I chuckled at this one uh we're our scientist uh you know he does he says he lives the monster lives which quite obviously you know we're avoiding any copyright area of saying it's alive, uh, <laughs> which gave me a chuckle. And then the most angel thing that angel, you know, I feel does every episode where we get his full frontal attack on the enemy without making any plan with the other X-Men. It's just <laughs> like, I'm going to stare at him and attack him straight on and see what happens. And, uh, you know, Frankenstein uh, gives them the old Thum punch <laughs> and <laughs> we uh, that's kind of, you know, bye bye angel out to the sky. Uh, then our, our next page is really we're getting each X-Men taking their shot at this uh, Frankenstein android. Uh, so, you know, we have 
beast who just kind of, you know, also does this beast thing where he's just going to kick him and pummel him and that doesn't really work out. Cyclops decides he's going to uh, shoot the old beams at him, uh, which just kind of soak through him and and go elsewhere. <laughs> and then what I think was kind of interesting, which, you know, we talk about these characters that just kind of get powers for no reason. Uh, we then discover Frankenstein can, uh, you know, just also shoot these rays that he's absorbed out of his eyes. Uh, you know, very similar to Cyclops and really gives them a good, uh, a good thump in all of them. Um, I was curious. I just wanted to know what, how everyone felt about just uh, Frankenstein handling the crew. Like none of the crew was very effective. Um, you know, while I read this, I kind of just kept thinking, Maybe we should have just let Gene handle it from the beginning. <laughs> yeah, just slammed him into a wall and then done with it. <laughs> uh, that tends to be the best idea. Yeah, it's the, the X-Men just rush in, and rather than trying anything, they just immediately attack, which is kind of their MO back then, I suppose. But it's like, punch him, attack him, blast him. Uh, there's no attempt at any sort of understanding at all. And he just slams him aside and walks through a wall. And is like, fuck you guys, I'm done. Which is great, kind of. I, I think I kind of like Frankenstein's monster here, if I'm honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah like, well, I, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, yeah, I was gonna say, I, I think it might have been the professor was sort of saying, if only we could have reasoned with him, like, because <laughs> later it's like, well, you didn't really try, did you? Yeah, it's like, did anyone actually read the book? Like the entire yeah. point of the book is you just talk to the creature. Like you just, the creature just craves empathy and lashes out only when it's treated as, as a monster. Yeah. And Professor X should really know this since right. you know, he's read the book so many times and has studied it. And I think he's this... signed the book for them to read in the past. I think he says earlier as well. Yeah. He says, I, I told you to read this earlier in the semester. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say also kind of interesting. Um, where we're talking about, you know, uh, video games and, you know, uh, older video games, like not necessarily needing that narrative just to like fight. It's like where, you know, you're just fighting. So it's interesting, you know, with these older issues that the X-Men is just kind of like all gun ho just it's like whatever. They're just going to fight for like at least two to three pages. And they, like starting off this issue, they're just going to fight. We don't really need to know why. That's what we're here for. We want to see them punch and blast <laughs> things, right? Yeah, uh, we, exactly. We've been paying attention, weirdly, to uh, the sound effects used for Cyclops's optic blast. And on page seven, we get a zack. Uh, so there's a new sound effect, just to note for our listeners. <laughs> there's also a batak. Is, do we think batak is the sound of the blast or of the blast striking Frankenstein specifically? Uh, I think, also on page seven. Yeah, I think I think it was a, a, a fact. Uh, yeah, it's I think B, it's B T O K. Oh, batok. Excuse yeah, me, batok. Yeah, I don't know what. I don't know how to make that sound in my head. <laughs> no, me neither. <laughs> that sounds more like something. That sounds more like something hitting something than like an energy sound to me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The most unfortunate one we keep talking about is Frap. We often get a F-R-A-P uh, whenever he <laughs> fires his blast, which is just unfortunate. Uh, uh, Rowan, tell us about pages 9 and 10. 
Uh, so then finally, uh, you know, we get some Marvel girl action going on. Which... Oh, oh, we have to note quickly when Frankenstein runs away, the X-Men follow him in a Rolls Royce. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, uh, I was going to say just just before they run away in the classiest car they possibly could, <laughs> chasing after them. Uh, yeah, finally get uh, Marvel Girl Jean come save Cyclops. And Cyclops, you know, gets tossed in the air. Jean saves them with her powers. Uh, and, you know, I think, uh, like I said, we really learn then that uh, I think Marvel Girl could have handled everything. Uh, but then we find out that, uh, you know, I feel like all these early issues, Professor X continues to talk about how he feels bad about having, you know, make homo sapiens forget what he makes them do for him. In this <laughs> case, get give them a free helicopter. And... Uh, yeah, for someone that is so sorry about it, he seems to do it an awful lot. He's like, I'm just going to convince people to give us stuff and then make them forget about it. Mm. Uh, but but it's a good thing that they had the chopper, uh, you know, because, you know, what's classier than exiting the Rolls Royce and going right into the chopper? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and then we... I want to make sure I didn't jump too far ahead there. Oh, no, you're great. And, and then uh, basically we land. Uh, they've seen that Frankenstein has gone on a ship and they land on the ship, which for some reason, everybody has like machine guns, uh, even though it seems that, you know, these guys are just like, ship workers they don't seem overly menacing uh so i don't know i've never worked on a ship but maybe a machine gun is something you need to own they're like smugglers of some kind apparently (laughs) (laughs) arms dealers (laughs) (laughs) but uh yeah and then we kind of get you know they we get the x-men roughing these ship workers slash smugglers up uh, you know, Gene lifting the captain up as always, uh, and some great, more great sound effects of the Bawak. Uh, I feel like there's a whole other podcast that could be made to like deep dive the sound effect choices. We've talked about doing like an ASMR where we're just reading the sound effects. Like, <laughs> flap. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, these, uh, these first 10 pages are just insane. I don't know what Frankenstein monster's goal is. He seems to be wanting to return to the Arctic circle again. That's why he's on this ship. Uh, uh, Rihanna, I want to ask you about your, uh, Frankenstein's monster knowledge, but wrap up these last five pages for us. Tell us, tell us what happens. And then let's talk about this concept for a few minutes. Uh, yeah. So do you, do you want me to talk about my Frankenstein knowledge or do the pages first? Uh, do the pages first and then let's talk about it. Okay, so um, they're hunting for Frankenstein's monster on the ship, and they're sort of slightly, and it, it, I think it harks back to the cover a bit when in the in the first um, image of I, I guess it's the eleventh page where Frankenstein's monster is actually hiding from them, and he's sort of on a on a kind of 
like upper roof or mezzanine roof where he seems to be hiding. <laughs> he seems to be in sort of stealth mode. He's hiding from beast. Um, and yeah, that's the first sort of time he's he's sort of hidden from them. Um, and it's yeah, it's, it makes you feel symp- a slight sympathy. I don't know if that's what they were intending, but obviously, you know, Frankenstein's monster is is meant to be a sympathetic. Uh, uh, creature, although he's not always been uh, uh, depicted that way. But yeah, so we basically go into you know another big fight uh, with uh, Beast um, trying out his skills, and then someone uh, oh Angel uh, tries uh, thankfully diversifies his approach and tries to kind of almost lasso Frankenstein's monster with a big rope dropped from oh. Well, it looks like it's attached a hook on the on the boat, uh, but Frankenstein's muscle breaks out of that, um, and uh, Gene uh, Gene to the rescue again uh, when he starts hurling barrels, um, and uh, Iceman manages to freeze them, and and Gene uses her skills to sort of I think lift up the monster. It looks like lift up the monster by the bar- uh, by the barrel that they're holding, and it's, it is basically another the, the the second sort of big fight um of the the issue where all the all the x-men are sort of you know trying out different things although they're a little bit more successful this time um and although sort of gene is gene is sort of knocked out and the female is down uh (laughs) says and um uh the professor actually starts to get involved um for the first time so i'm not sure why he didn't get involved in the first initial fight that they had in the museum but he Cause he's because he's an asshole right okay <laughs> he loves so to see he, teenagers get beat up <laughs> <laughs> so he he is sort of psychically reaching out to to frankenstein's monster and um uh sort of saying that uh, you know he's he's got to to destroy him which obviously is not going to go down that well and then then he appears i guess he he'd gone with i don't know how he's got onto the ship but can he just like i don't know all the powers can he just appear like it seems very random that he's suddenly on the ship i mean i imagine he was on the helicopter with the others so. okay so yeah we haven't seen him on the ship until that point but he sort of uh, rolls towards Frankenstein's monster, and Frankenstein's monster is going after him. And Cyclops intervenes, um, and uh, the, the the professor sort of does his kind of te- telekinetic powers. They're not really working very well. And well, and weirdly, ice- weirdly, he can communicate with the robot telepathically, but he can't. Then he specifically says, like, he doesn't have a human brain, so I can't influence his thoughts. But then how, I don't know. It's it's, it's strange. <laughs> we saw him do this earlier with the Sentinels a little bit. He could kind of like mentally interface with the robot Sentinels. Uh, so he has some sort of weird like robot telepathy sometimes in the sixties. <laughs> it's, it's a strange asset of, or, or, or a, a facet of his powers. Um. Yeah. Yeah. He's. It. I mean, there's 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 a lot of inconsistencies in this issue. Um. Yeah, with along with sort of uh, the origin of, of Frankenstein's monster, amongst many things. But the the X Men that has the, you know, who actually manages to do some some damage to uh, Frankenstein's monster is uh, is Iceman, who um, starts to encase Frankenstein's monster in ice. 
And then as always, as always, we're hitting that last page where the writer's like, oh shit, we haven't wrapped up the story yet. We only have yeah. one page. <laughs> Um, and that sort of seems to be working. You, I don't remember Ice Iceman going in for an attack in the first time, so uh, in in the museum. But yeah, the apparently the the ice is his. We find out ice is his his weakness, uh, and this is um, what uh, stems from you know uh, the professor talks about his original demise in the books, where he leaps into to the ocean in the Arctic and obviously he's ended up in ice and that's that's his sort of weak point. And have I got one more page to do after that? Uh, no, no, you can stop there where the where the issue ends. Um, we see this kind of- Oh, no, I haven't, I haven't got it yet. So oh, I apologize. I, I yeah, page 15. Up. So he, <clears throat> he can't stand the cold and then he explodes. <laughs> I think he's, he's exploding. And then it sort of ends in a very- odd way where they 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 suggest that oh okay dr frankenstein was not um it, like okay he's not a mutant in fact some sort of space tourists were basically <laughs> going by the earth and they like dropped off their monster there to like go and go and sort of um say hello to people scope out the terrain that sort of thing and and we were just very mean to him and that so it's all all the fault so he was kind of like an intergalactic, uh, well, they say, yeah, interstellar ambassador, but it, but it all kind of went wrong, um, and it made me laugh. The sort of said, "Well, we'll never know how Mary Shelley learned any of this, so perhaps it's just as well." And that's the only time that like anyone's really questioned. But you know what happened? You know what happened in the book, and why you know he looks like a movie monster and not like he does in the book, and. Uh, all, all the kind of the movie the way he's he, you know, he he's been kind of adapted and is it from the book or is it sort of an amalgamation of how you know Frankenstein's monster has looked over the years yeah it's 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 very tenuous <laughs> so like I was hoping that you know maybe maybe you know Mary Shelley was some kind of mutant as well but yeah they, they <laughs> sort of dismiss her from the picture and and they, they she's just like well we may never know and so that's how it ends. So the basic last page reveal is 150 years ago, some aliens that we never hear about again dropped a robot on Earth that got frozen in ice, and now here he is. Yeah. Now, Marvel does have actual Frankenstein's monster, uh, who has, I think the first appearance was in the issue Monster of Frankenstein, number one, which uh, which was in the 70s, who's been around it, even in recent comics. I think he was recently in an uh, issue of Moon Knight. He's part of the Legion of Monsters. He's He's been around for decades. There's also been other versions. There's a there's a flashback to World War II when the invaders fight another Frankenstein's monster, and then there's some great stories. You guys all have to look this up uh, in the Silver Surfer, where he fights Borgo, who is a guy called the Franken Surfer. It's a, it's a really fun issue. So look it up if you haven't. Uh, so uh, Rihanna, you were telling me in an email that you uh, you wrote about uh, uh, Mary Shelley's book. Tell us yeah, how, yeah, tell us a little bit about your work and how yeah, this compares to the real story. Well, I wrote my dissertation on on uh, Frankenstein in at university, um, and it was called Frankenstein Unwound: The Assimilation of the Frankenstein Myth into Popular Culture. So it's actually looking at how the book was adapted um, from from its uh, original uh, from when it was originally published in eighteen eighteen to um, you know how it's adapted on stage initially. 
um, you know, TV, film, and how basically whatever was going on in society at the time, societal concerns reflected the way it got adapted. So, um, for example, when it's first adapted uh, onto stage, it was a sort of time when there was a great distrust of the medical profession. Um, you know, there was grave robbings, uh, grave uh, robbings happening of bodies and, and sort of um, doctors paying for cadavers to, to kind of operate on things like that. And so in the original stage play, they, they very much focus on the doctor uh, as, as, as being you know, the bad guy and the evil one. Uh, and then when you're sort of moving on to film and TV, there's much more emphasis on the monster um, and, and the, the, the sort of powerful Im imagery of the monster uh, being being the real scary thing about it. And then that sort of kind of diversifies a little later. So you've got things like um, uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which was the Kenneth Branagh one, where I, th I think there's some emphasis on uh, where Mary Shelley is involved in that. And then there's stories about the night when Mary, I think it's the, the villa, De Tate, where Frankenstein is originally conceived, and that was in Ken Russell's Gothic. And I think that's like Byron, Mary Shelley, Percy Shelley, and I can't, I can't remember the name of the, the guy that wrote The Vampire. Um, and they were basically, Frankenstein came about, uh, uh, you know, like uh, as a party game almost. They, you know, a group of friends got together and challenged each other um, to come up with a, with a, a scary story. And Mary Shelley went to bed and and uh, came up with Frankenstein um, and you know, claimed it had, it was part of a dream that she'd had. Uh, and yeah, so that's how it came to be. Uh, I do respect the fact that the comic does actually talk about the, the, the ending of the book of Frankenstein and, and how it, uh, you know, how he ended up in the Arctic and how he, he uh, Frankenstein's monster after Frankenstein's death. Sorry, spoiler alert there. Uh, how he jumped <laughs> uh, jumped off the boat into the Arctic and was kind of never seen again. So they do kind of follow on, <coughs> excuse me, from where the book ended, but that, so that's where all similarities, um, uh, yeah, after that, all, there are no similarities uh, between Frankenstein's monster in the book and, and what happens here. How does this, um, how does this issue stand up as a Frankenstein's story or as a horror story? Uh, how do you, how do you guys feel? I, I feel it's like it's nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> I mean, it introduces this sort of mind boggling implication that Mary Shelley at some point saw this alien android Frankenstein and basically like made up her own story to explain it. Um, I don't know, just this is wild. It's wild and it's almost one of those things where it's so wild and absurd that it almost feels like a secret success to me, like that they spun out the story of alien android Frankenstein with Cyclops eye beams and all this shit. It's just wild. It sounds like something that a kid like a story a kid would make up on the playground, you know, and, and and I almost admire it on that basis. I think they need to uh, they need to redo like this type of story in the modern X-Men world. But I need uh, Frankenstein's monster to resemble Robert De Niro's Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs>
We, uh, so as I'm booking different professionals at different times, I've had at least five different people go, do I get to be on the Frankenstein issue? Like this is fondly remembered <laughs> as nonsense by a lot of people, which is, which is a fun thing. Uh, we, we, uh, we kind of understand the target audience back then as white kids picking up comics off of Iraq in the late sixties. Right. And we know that the X-Men were not doing well, well sales wise. And I think they were kind of tossing out everything we can. We see Spider-Man show up. We see Frankenstein show up. We see all these attempts to try to make the book work and it just doesn't and it kind of does it for like the next 26 issues after this uh until neil adams comes aboard when neil adams comes on and the art changes it's suddenly really stunning and then it gets canceled uh which is which is tragic but it's fun to go back and read the original books Ariana, how do you feel like this holds up as a as a frankenstein's monster story well i mean it's, it's very um based around you know the, the film and tv frankenstein's monster and not really anything to do with the frankenstein in the books despite the fact that that's where they kick it off like they you know the professor talks about the book and you know the reason that he's ended up in the ice is because of the ending of the book and then it, they they sort of throw that away and it's all lace beams for eyes but you think you know mary shelley would have noted down um and yeah it was it, yeah, it's just, it's just, it's very ridiculous, but, but sort of like it has a weird charm to it as well, I found. And it's probably because I'm not used to these, these comics. Um, and it was ridiculous, but I sort of felt, yes, that, that feels like it was kind of in keeping with, with kind of how I think of, you know, some of the long, some of the issues of long running comics, particularly the ones that were, um based around a, a particular like cameo appearance of a monster um i felt like the uh you know the the kind of intergalactic travelers who just dropped off their android was was a little bit of a letdown i was hoping that there was you know as you said that like mary shelley had seen it and, and constructed a story or like they would have maybe gone back to the origins of the book and folded that in somehow um but yeah it's it's you know bonkers but the, it is a good excuse for some very some very good um sound effects I don't. Uh, so I guess there's that. <laughs> I don't feel like this is an X-Men story. I feel like you could put any character from Batman to the Avengers in this, and it would be the same story. You're just changing the hero up for someone else. Uh, it, it's it's kind of nonsense in that way, but it's fun still. And I think the art is actually pretty great in a lot of spots. But yeah, it's a, it's a really rushed, weird story with a lot of words per panel that are just unnecessary. Now, I'm going to wrap up the final five pages very quickly. Uh, so we have this thing going on where there's a five page backup that continues from issue to issue where Roy Thomas is exploring the early days of the X-Men. And I'll, I'll recap this quickly and then let me know your thoughts. So Cyclops is an orphan we've recently learned who in the past, this is flashback to before X-Men number one, he had these mutant uh, mutant powers of optic blasts that he can't control. And he's recently seen an optometrist who gave him ruby quartz glasses that will block his blasts. But if he drops his glasses, then his blast will just fire. There's no way for him to control them. Uh, so he, this recently got caught on video. So now he's run away. The authorities are after him because they know he's a mutant. And Professor X has become aware of him and is hunting him down. That's basically where this is at. So this, uh, this, this uh, story is called The First Evil Mutant. Uh, it's by Roy Thomas with uh, Werner Roth and John Verporten uh, and then Al Kurz, uh, Kurzrock on, uh, on letters. So I uh, one thing interesting here is we see this line in the very first box that talks about how Cyclops is on the run from a world that hates and fears him. 
And that's kind of the, the famous tagline from the X-Men. You know, they're in a world uh, of people who hate and fear them. I almost feel like this is maybe the first time that tagline was used, which is interesting. Um, uh, so Jack Winters is an obscure, obscure Marvel villain called Jack of Diamonds or Jack of Diamonds. He's later known as the Living Diamond. And he's a little Emma Frost-like, but very unlikable. He, we learn in this issue that he can communicate telepathically. He can teleport himself and others brief distances. And we get a little bit of a backstory where he was working in a nuclear plant and some explosion turned his hands into diamonds, which is bizarre. And it kind of seems like maybe that's his mutant power, but this explosion just unlocked his ability to change to diamond, which is why I say he's Emma Frost-like, because she's telepathic and can change herself into diamond. But he has called out to Cyclops because he senses he's a mutant and he wants to recruit him for evil. Uh, the police are closing in and he teleports them away, basically a short distance. Uh, we see Professor X has designed a computer called Cyberno, which is like the early prototype of Cerebro. And <laughs> there was an issue of the X-Men recently uh, in the 60s where Professor X actually accidentally called Cerebro Cyberno. So I think this is the writer's attempt to try to be like, oh, that wasn't a mistake. <laughs> see, <laughs> it actually was called Cyberdome before. Uh, we see uh, Winters, and by the way, uh, we see Jack Winters and Scott Summers. So there's kind of a funny little parallel between the two of them with Winters and Summers there. Uh, Winters takes Scott back to uh, back to the uh, nuclear plant where his goal is to get another atomic explosion to go off so he can turn his entire body into diamond. Uh, but Professor X is there and Winters can kind of block his telepathy. Uh, so that's kind of where it ends. I'm just summing that up really quickly. We see kind of a young moldable Cyclops here who is still very unsure of himself. And this is where his first meeting with Professor X takes place, uh, right here in this plant as this villain is trying to uh, use him. Now, uh, uh, are any of you familiar with this character, uh, Jack of Diamonds? He's pretty obscure. Yeah, only from reading this story previously. Yeah, I've I've read him, I think, in one other thing, and I can't remember what it was, like something random. So he's, yeah, we, we occasionally see him used when we're telling a Cyclops origin story somewhere, but he's in the next couple issues in the backup features. And the only other time he's ever shown up is uh, in John Byrne's Sensational She-Hulk, uh, numbers uh, 34 and 35. And that's literally the only times he's ever been used. Uh, he's he's pretty obscure, but I, I think there's this kind of attempt on Roy Thomas's part to provide this backstory to show a little bit of how the X-Men came to be. And he's he's going to tell this story slowly over time over the next several issues as Professor X recruits the team. Uh, did you guys have any thoughts on these five pages? Did you enjoy them? I was expecting the, the first evil X-Men to be like a more recognizable character. I was kind of expecting it to be, oh, this is the this is you know, a very significant character or someone that would become a significant character. And uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I, you know, like I said, my X-Men knowledge is not that great, but yeah, it was very, it was very random. Um, and I think Scott's bow tie actually changes color <laughs> through the issue. So he starts <laughs> off with a green bow tie on the first page. And then on the last page, he has a blue bow tie. Ooh, maybe this is a maybe this is a side effect of Jack Winter's teleportation powers. It, it also changes bow tie colors. <laughs> now the first, the original first evil mutant is Magneto, who is uh, who the X Men face in the first issue. Uh, but in this flashback, we get this kind of forgettable character. Meh. <laughs> 
Jack and Yeah, it felt like, yeah, him. that maybe they should have um, trailed him in a different way rather than the first evil mutant. But maybe the second wouldn't have had the same impact. But yeah, it does, it does make you feel like you're getting something more significant than you actually do. Now, in the next issue of the X-Men, uh, you guys can look at camera here. We continue kind of the monster theme. The X-Men fight a guy named Grotesque. Uh, uh, Rowan and Patrick, like the last time you were on, this is a cover all in red, which is kind of like, oh, look at the horror. Uh, so we're going to continue this kind of monster theme for the next little while, which is interesting. Uh, was it fun for you guys to read this issue? Did you enjoy yourself? What stood out to you as something that maybe you'll carry with you, if anything? I mean, I keep going on about the text. Like, I, I just, I'm not familiar with reading uh, comics from the 60s. But yeah, compared to how you know comics get done these days, Gosh, it's just the density and but also marveling at the skill of the placement of, of the text as well and how much effort went into to doing that without obscure, you know, without obstructing the action and the images. It's, it's kind of it's really impressive how much they get get on. I kind of just wish it was for a better story. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I will never forget this insane collision between the X-Men and Frankenstein and this insane extrapolation upon the the Mary Shelley's Frankenstein story. Um, I have had definitely forgotten, and I think we'll quickly forget again, the backup story. These, these origin story <laughs> backups, I don't like them in general. Like, they go on for so many issues, and they're so banal like they just flesh out these characters usually in the least interesting possible way and it's like you've got you've got an origin story to tell here man come on like make make good use of this and usually they're extremely disappointing and this was no exception yeah the concept is interesting he's trying to tell yeah. us the before story but yeah ultimately it's a little bit forgettable i'd agree uh Rowan, any thoughts I, for you? I was gonna say too the backup story i always feel you know just because of the time and where the X-Men were with sales. Like to me, I always felt it was an obvious kind of grab to be like, Hey, you're getting like two stories. If you buy this comic, mm -hmm. uh, even though, you know, it's kind of five pages of just whateverness. Um, but I mean, yeah, kind of like Patrick, uh, you know, it was fun to revisit this issue. Uh, you know, not, a, not on an official podcast like this or, Patrick's Instagram, but I'm also reading from beginning to current X-Men. And, you know, right now I'm, I I'm somewhere, I think in the two hundreds right now. Uh, and, you know, I said this, I think last time I was on the, these old X-Men are not one. I uh, tend to visit uh, that uh, often. I, I think, like you said, once Neil Adams takes over, especially once we get like Claremont in yeah, yeah. there uh, and, and we actually get some like really well done fleshed out character stories. Um, you know, I'll probably live without reading, you know, Stanley or Roy Thomas's uh, misogynistic text in any of these. I mean, Claremont takes what works about the X-Men and makes it good. Uh, and that's the point of this podcast in some ways is, you know, people have seen the movies or the cartoon or read the Claremont stuff, but very few people have gone back to do the 60s stuff. So that's kind of the point. Uh, what an absolute honor to sit with each of you. Uh, Rowan and Patrick, I think you're delightful. And Rihanna, I'm such a fan of your work and getting to know you today has been so insightful. Thank you for not only sharing your personal stories and your professional advice, but just spending time nerding out with us. This was really, really fun. Oh, you're very welcome. It's been, it's been a lot of fun.
Uh, as we're wrapping up, uh, tell everybody where we can find each of you online and what we might have to look forward to uh, coming up uh, in your own personal projects. Uh, let's go uh, Rihanna and then Rowan and then Patrick. Uh, you can find me online, um, mainly on Twitter, at, at Pratchett is my handle on Twitter. Um, I can't really talk about some of the things that are coming up just yet, but some of the things I've done recently is we talked about Women of Marvel uh, issue one. I have a, a little uh, story in there, uh, Shana and, and Silver Sable, um, and that was a lot of fun to do. Um, recently, uh, last year, I uh, published a book uh, which I co-authored with Andy Newington called Campaigns and Companions, which is about pets playing D&D. Uh, and that was it's just a kind of jokey, silly book with a lot of a lot of gags about poo, um, which is like a, at least 50 percent of keeping pets is, is about poo. <laughs> uh, and yeah, it's just it's just got some great uh, artwork and it was just a whole heap of fun. Um, and that's that's been doing pretty well. Uh, and, and sort of prior to that, um, uh, I wrote a fighting fantasy book called Crystal of Storms. Um, the the first woman to to write a, a fighting fantasy book, strangely enough, um, and that again, lots of fun to do. I, I got, kind of grew up with those books when I was a kid, so it was a real honour to to write for for one of those. Um, yeah, and so ev everything else is is super secret, but um, my my Twitter feed will be the place to find out about them. And Rowan. Uh, so you can find uh, our podcast, you know, everywhere, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, it's Slay's podcast. Uh, you know, there should be some pretty, you said this was going to be out in about April. So uh, really April. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think we've got some, some fun uh, stuff coming up in April. And I, I think in May, we're actually going to be visiting uh, some Bella Lugosi Dracula. So a little parallel to Frankenstein here. And uh, I'm on Twitter, not that often, but also Instagram at Biggie Halls. I usually talk about, you know, talk about comics or mostly movies. I'm a big movie collector. Uh, yeah, but that's where you can find our stuff. And Patrick. Uh, on the X-Men front, you can find me at NeverEndingXMen on Instagram. I am in the early 90s right now, which is an interesting time to be reading through X-Men. Just wrapped up Executioner's Song, and we'll mm. be moving on past that uh, soon. And do I think, I think Phalanx Covenant is maybe the next big event that I'll be moving through, probably uh, in March and April. Uh, on the horror movie side of things, uh, again, I'm co-host of Every Horror Movie on Netflix uh, podcast, and you can find that at AmonCast, that's spelled E-H-M-O-N, for Every Horror Movie on Netflix cast on uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, we recently did a crossover with the It Slays podcast where we both reviewed the movie Hush. And coming up soon, we will also be remove, uh, re reviewing the Megan Fox uh, movie, Till Death, which I've heard is actually quite good. So I'm excited about that. I, I think you're both doing great work. And uh, and Rihanna, I can't wait to see what announcements are coming soon that you can talk about. Uh, now on, on uh, Grey Mouth and Lake, you've heard a couple of recent episodes we did featuring uh, the character of Magneto, which are just stunning. My favorite thing we've ever done on the podcast. If you haven't heard those, go check them out. It's, uh, it's really impressive work. Bring some tissues, make sure you're doing some self-care because there's actually some pretty rough content uh, given Magneto's origins. 
Uh, and then our next episode, we will be uh, reviewing X-Men 41 with the novelist Neil Clyde. Uh, so thank you, everybody. We'll see you back here next time. Thank you so much for listening to Gray Malkin Lane. I'm pouring a lot of time, labor, and love into this podcast, and I truly hope you are enjoying it. We're seeking to create a unique space here, and I'm really proud of what we've put out so far and really excited about what we have coming up. Gray Malkin Lane is recorded and edited at a private studio in Salt Lake City, Utah. Music and editing are done by my husband, Michael Bell. Gray Malkin Lane can be found on Twitter at Gray Malkin P, P like podcast, and on Instagram under Gray Malkin Lane. If you're enjoying our work, help us spread the word about this unique podcast. Please leave us a good review wherever you listen and check out our bonus content and fan engagement on Patreon. We'll see you back here next episode on Gray Malkin Lane.